Okay, good evening and welcome to lesson five of This Can Happen. Tonight's lesson is titled Out of the Blues. And what another uh, beautiful, uh, fascinating, a home run discussion, I think, on the topic that we are discussing over the last few weeks, the topic of Mashiach, the era of Mashiach, etc. And we're going to uh, kind of change gears a little bit tonight. You talk about Mashiach from a little bit of a different angle. A little bit of a different angle. So, we spoke in the last few weeks about the, the era of Mashiach. What's going to be at, the, at, at this era? We're talking about a lot of the prophecies about there's no more famine and no envy and no fighting and no illness. All, you know, uh, longevity, all these things that we see that today we've made major progress. We spoke about the the more uh, uh, you know the essence of the coming of Mashiach, where it's not just about more materialistic good and and tranquility, peace and tranquility. It's not just an answer solution to our problems, but it really is the purpose of creation. It's really the purpose of it all. Why did God create heaven and earth in order that we should have a dwelling place for God here in this world, which is the era of Mashiach? And we spoke about that we take an active part, we are active participation, an active role in making this happen. When we do acts of goodness and kindness, when we study Torah, do mitzvahs, right? Our, our deeds is like drops in a cup of water, which eventually fills up the cup, right? So our deeds actually makes the era of Mashiach. And last week we spoke about the, the progress that we've seen in this regard as well, where Jewish history, although it seems chaotic, Right, but it's like a key, we said, right? The, the, the grooves, the, the ups and the downs, the highs and the low points are really all progress. The high points and the, the low points is all part of the progress to reach this point where a, a true bottom up that we have, we take our own initiative, where we don't have any 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 pressure, not positive pressure like it was in the time of the temple era, not negative pressure, which we said negative pressure is the pressure from the nations around us, or perhaps anti-Semitism, from, from persecution, which we had for thousands of years where we felt there is no other way. Of course, I'm going to cling on to my religion because of the, the hostilities around me, which is obviously not a good thing, but the fringe benefit, you could say, is it motivated Jews to connect to their heritage, to, connect, to, to hang on, to, to cling to their religion. But today, in the last 50, 100 years, where there, where there truly isn't any pressure for a Jew today in America, it's really their own initiative. A Jew decides, hey, let me come and, and join a JLI and come and study Torah. No one's going to say boo if they do or if they don't. There's no pressure. It's really our own decision. It's our own initiative. We, if we decide to put up a mezuzah, if we don't decide to put up a mezuzah, light the Shabbat candles, to visit someone, right? Whatever we do, it's our own volition, right? We decided. This is truly the idea of bottom-up. So this is truly, uh, now is really apropos, this, this is really the opportune time for the coming of Mashiach, because it's truly a work in progress where it's bottom-up, our own initiative, which ultimately makes the vessel for this place to be fully, fully transformed and being able to uh, to be a dwelling place for godliness. So this is a, a, a summary, a 
a short, quick recap, the last four lessons. Now we, 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 we come to lesson five. And lesson five is special and unique. You know why? Because it's tonight's class. So it got to be special, right? Okay. So we spoke a, a lot about the why. Why Mashiach? Why did God want Mashiach? What do we have to do to bring upon a, the era of Mashiach? Tonight we're going to discuss how is it going to happen? What is it going to look like? Right? Mashiach is going to come. What does that mean? What does it mean Mashiach is going to come? Are we going to wake up one morning and Mashiach is here? Are we going to hear it on the news? Are we going to read it in the paper? Is there going to be some great you know, alarm system? Hey, Mashiach is here. Is it, what, what's going to happen? Right? If we believe in something, we have to know what are we believing in. Right? Many of us will say, yeah, I believe in Mashiach, especially we've studied over the last few weeks, the importance of Mashiach, it's a, it's a tenet, it's a, it's a fundamental belief in Judaism. Okay, I believe in Mashiach. You know, many of us had an opportunity to say the Kaddish prayer. The Kaddish prayer is a prayer that we say after someone passes away. He's right? In the Kaddish prayer, we're actually mentioning Mashiach. We're asking God to bring Mashiach. So we all talk about Mashiach. We all believe in Mashiach. Well, what are we believing in? How is it going to happen? It's imminent. It's happening. What's happening? How is it going to play out? It's important to know what is, what is the belief? What does the Torah say? What does Judaism teach about the coming of Mashiach? How is it going to play out? So we'll discuss that. And together with that, we'll also discuss who is Mashiach. Is there a person, a, a who, to the Messiah, the Mashiach? Okay. Like, like always, I'd love discussion. If you have any questions or comments, please share it with me either here on the chat or in a person. So we're going to start with how is it going to happen? So the Judaism teaches that there is this idea of a of a is this my phone yeah. of this of a sudden like a like a sudden surprise to the coming of Mashiach. It's almost like out of the blue, right? I think that's the name of the class, right? Out of the blue, right? It's like, hey, we wake up one morning and Mashiach is here. I want to read text one and text four for you. Text one, we're on page 196. Lesson five, text one, is from the prophet Malachi, who was the last of the Jewish prophets in the book of prophets. Chapter three, verse one. He writes as follows. Behold, I will send my angel and he will clear away before me. And suddenly the God whom you seek will come to his temple. This is referring to the time of Mashiach. What's the key word over here? Suddenly, like a bolt of lightning, it's, it's gonna be sudden. We're not going to expect it. I want to skip. You can read all these other texts, interesting texts. I want to skip the text four. <coughs> the Midrash, on page 200. The Jewish people of that generation will say, Is it possible that the world functions as usual and nevertheless the redemption will arrive this year? 
right? And this is a question many of us ask at the end of the Seder. Really, do we really look at it, look at the world around us? We really believe that with all that's going on, Mashiach could really come. So the answer in text four is, however, they do not realize that Mashiach's arrival will be sudden. Not when we're expecting it, when we're least expecting it. That is when it's going to happen. Right? Sometimes, you know, we can be by the phone and we're expecting a phone call, right? We're waiting. Our, our daughter's expecting a baby any day, right? Any moment, we're waiting for that phone call to come in. But then it's like, hey, I'm just going about my day. I'm shopping, I'm on vacation, I'm sleeping, I'm eating, I'm, I'm schmoozing, I'm just, you know, watching you. I'm just doing my thing. And suddenly, like that, it happens. Many things came to our lives suddenly. COVID was a kind of a sudden, sudden, you know, no one predicted this a week before. Sometimes, I mean, to the, to the degree of the shutdown, even a day before, right? I think we all remember how from minute to minute, it was like, whoa, they just announced schools are not closing. That was a minute ago. Today, now they announced they are closing, right? But minute to minute, things change, right? No one expected it. Mashiach, this is going to come suddenly. But here's the question. The question is, we've been, we've been preparing for Mashiach all these, all these years, thousands of years. Is it really going to be suddenly? Is it not going to be gradually? We're gradually getting closer and closer. And I want to throw in text five just to make it more interesting. How we see in other Jewish sources, we actually seem to imply that it will be gradual. Okay, look at text five. This is from the, the Jerusalem Talmud, the first tractate, the tractate of Brachas, right at the beginning. Rabbi Chia Bar Abba and Rabbi Shimon Ben Chalafta, two great sages in the, in the Jerusalem Talmud, they were once walking through the Arable Valley and watched the break of dawn. Oh, what a beautiful sight, right? You wake up early one morning and watch the break of dawn, right? Sometimes I'll take my kids or I'll, I'll take a road trip, we drive through the night, and we like to watch the break of dawn. Beautiful, beautiful sight. Whereupon Rabbi Chia told Rabbi Shimon, so will the Jewish redemption. So will be the Jewish redemption. It will begin with small steps, as it is stated. Although I will sit in darkness, God will be a light, on, a light to me. Then as it progresses, it will greatly swell and expand. Okay, so we see on the one hand, there'll be like a bolt of out of the blue. We'll wake up one morning in some wonderland, right? We, oh, totally you know, shocked, sudden, sudden change of everything. And on the other hand, it seems like it's going to be a gradual process. And the Talmud explains that ultimately both are true. Both are true. First, the Talmud explains that it really depends on our merits, depends how worthy we are. Is it gradual or is it sudden? But ultimately, the, the, it's understood that it's both true. It's gradual. But at the same time, it's going to be more than we expect. Maybe, I'm not sure if this is a good example, but maybe this could give some explanation. You know, I think we, uh, many of you, if, all, if not all of us, remember the fall of communism of, in, in Russia, right? It's about, what, 30 years ago? <coughs> For the Jews living in communist Russia, 
in the 70s, in the 60s, even in the 80s, they saw no end to this. It was so, uh, so much of a tight grip. It was so, so much you know, a, a reality that there was no way out of it. They, they saw no end to communism. It was like a miracle. It was like the exodus of Egypt, right? It made no sense for this ever to end. And then eventually there was the fall of communism. Now, was it a sudden thing or was there a progress? Well, we know that behind the scenes, there was obviously a progress. Of course there was a progress, right? But we did, most people did not recognize that progress. We didn't predict it, but it was something that was happening. But when it happened, even those who were in, in, in the secret, they knew the, the, the process, they were also surprised because it was more than, they, than what they expected. So perhaps the same thing can be with Mashiach. It's a, of course, it's a progress. It's a gradual progress. We've been working for 2,000 years on bringing Mashiach. And every time we do a good deed, we are bringing Mashiach closer. But at the same time, when it does happen, it's more than we expect. It's out of the blue. It's like, well, I didn't, I didn't expect it to be this way, right? It's going to be sudden. So this is what the Talmud tells us. That when Mashiach comes... What are we believing in? What's the, you know, I believe in Mashiach. Now, there is going to be this sudden excitement. There's going to be a sudden, out of the blue, oh, Mashiach is here. We're not going to be expecting. It's not like, okay, tomorrow, 2 o'clock. You know, Israel just announced a ceasefire in Israel. Like that. 2 o'clock ceasefire. It's not going to be, okay, 2 p.m., mark your calendars. Mashiach is coming. Put on your tie. Put on your best, your finest outfit. That's great Mashiach. It's not going to happen. It's going to be out of the blue. Gonna be out of the blue. They say that I think it was the Chafetz Chaim, one of the great rabbis in Lithuania, always had a a a a a, a, like a small bag or a suitcase prepared under his bed with the change of you know nice clothing in case Mashiach comes. He has what to take with him. You know. <laughs> He believed so much that Mashiach is coming. He had it ready. Whenever, when, you know, he, should, he shouldn't be caught off guard, right? He should always be ready. So that's point number one. Let's go on to point number two. If you have any questions, we'll uh, you can discuss it. <clears throat> okay. Point number two is that Judaism talks about this announcement. The, the, the announcer of Mashiach. Who is going to announce Mashiach? Who's going to let us know that Mashiach is here? We're going to wake up and know it. We're just going to feel it in our bones. That's also true, by the way. I'm sure that's also true. But look at text 7. Text 7 on page 203. This is also from the prophet Malachi. And this is actually the last prophecy of Malachi. So it's really the last prophecy in, in the Book of Prophets. What's the last prophecy? It's like the last two verses of Malachi. Page 203, text 7. I will send Elijah the prophet to you before the arrival of the day of God. The arrival of the, of the day of God is referred to the time of Mashiach. What does the prophet say? And who's going to come before? Elijah the prophet. And you may have heard this before. That Elijah the prophet is going to come to usher in. To, to let us know about Mashiach. And Elijah, the name Elijah in Judaism came, became synonymous 
with Mashiach, with the redemption. When we talk about Elijah the prophet, what comes to mind is, yeah, he's the one that's going to bring Mashiach. And we find this in our prayers time and again. We reference Elijah and Mashiach. Not that he will be Mashiach, but he will announce Mashiach. So, for example, in Judaism, there are two times, two uh, occasions where we, where, where Elijah comes to visit. Now, who is Elijah? So Elijah, I think many of us know, is one of the most famous uh, <coughs> and beloved prophets of Judaism. He lived in northern Israel in the 8th century BCE, so we're talking about, about 2,800 years ago or so, and he uh, reportedly, um, there's something uh, miraculous that happened to him. He did not die. The book of Malachim describes how he miraculously with his body ascended to heaven in this like chariot that went up to heaven. And the, the prophets tell us that he will return. And we know that he comes to visit the Jewish people every once in a while. Most famously, when does he come to visit us? On Passover. Who said that? Yeah, on, on, on Pesach, on Passover. We have, during the Seder, we, have, we even have a special cup. The cup of Elijah. I guess Elijah doesn't like matzah, I guess. Or... Uh, or, or, or the wine, we give, we fill up a cup of wine for him, but maybe he doesn't like harosas, I don't know. Just the wine. I think he's smart. You know, he knows what's, what's most important, right? We can say l'chaim to, to Elijah. So we, we, we have this custom, we have this nice big, big cup for Elijah, and we also, customer, we open the door. We open the door, we say, hey, Elijah, welcome in, come in, right? Join, join our family at the Seder, right? So we, we open the door for Elijah, and in the Haggadah, there's a there's a, a, a couple of verses of prayer. We pray to Elijah, and what are we praying about? Amongst other amongst other things, we also pray for the coming of Mashiach, Elijah the prophet. Of course, we got to ask for Mashiach. He's the man. He's the person you got to ask. When's another time in Judaism that Elijah comes to visit? Not a holiday. I'm a moho, hint, hint. And a bris, exactly. And a bris. A circumcision, right? Every bris. In fact, we have a beautiful cheer of Elijah, right? Many synagogues will have a special cheer dedicated for Elijah. What does that mean? Elijah comes and says, it's the president's cheer or the rabbi's cheer. Who cheer is it? It's Elijah's cheer. What does that mean? It means that at a circumcision, at a bris, we perform the bris on this cheer because Elijah comes to visit. The bris. So we have a cheer dedicated for Elijah. And in fact, in the center, if you know, if you follow along with all the prayers that we say before and after the bris, we say a certain prayer, the Mohel will say a prayer to Elijah. And we ask for various things. One of the things that we ask for again is Mashiach. Right? So Elijah is synonymous with Mashiach. Because of this prophecy in text 7, that Elijah will come before the coming of Mashiach. Now, what exactly is the purpose of Elijah? Let's look at the figure of 5.1 on page 204. So there are various uh, ideas that are brought throughout Jewish literature to explain what is the purpose, what is the goal of Mashiach, uh, Elijah's uh, coming. Number one is most famous, is the, to announce Mashiach's imminent arrival. That's the most basic understanding of, of why he's coming. Number two, some other commentaries explain that Maimonides actually writes this, 
that he's here to inspire Israel to better their ways and prepare their hearts for their redemption. Some other commentators explain to number three to restore prophecy to the Jewish people. Number four is answer unresolved halachic uh, queries. In, in the Talmud, many times there could be arguments, there could be disputes, there could be uh, uh, different opinions on a specific law, and we don't know what the answer is, right? So every time there's a dispute, we obviously have to follow one opinion. We can't, we can't do both opinions, right? We can't put the mezuzah straight, horizontal, and vertical, right? It doesn't work. However, ultimately, many times, the Talmud itself would say, this dispute will be answered by Elijah. When Elijah comes, he'll answer this question. So that's number four. Elijah comes to answer many of the unresolved questions. And number five is to restore the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the main body of rabbis that was sitting in the temple and they had to have a certain ordination that was unique. And Elijah will come to restore this main body of rabbis, which had to be done before Mashiach comes. If you notice on page 205, you have a nice illustration from an ancient Haggadah, which is talking about the prayer that we say when we open the door. If you notice on the Monday, we have a man riding a donkey, which that's referring to the Mashiach, because you know, it says that Mashiach will come riding on a donkey. And right behind him, we have someone blowing a shofar. That is reference to Elijah the prophet announcing his arrival through the, the, the blowing of the shofar. So that is the second stage. That before the actual coming of Mashiach, we'll have Elijah over here to let us know. Questions and comments before we go on to the next uh, part of tonight's discussion. Okay, so now we move on to the discussion, the million dollar question. The million dollar question is, well, who is Mashiach? The Torah, when it talks about Mashiach, it talks about a human being. A human being being Mashiach. It's not some angel up in heaven. It's not some spirit. It's an actual person, a mortal human being. As it says in text 8, King Mashiach will certainly be a righteous human born of a man and woman, right? A real human being. So the question is, who is Mashiach? Is there a way to know who the Mashiach will be? Meaning, there is the Messianic era, which we've discussed up until this point. What will be at the Messianic era? Why do we have the Messianic era? What's the purpose? How would... But then there is the Mashiach. So when we say Mashiach, Messiah, in Judaism, it means the era of Messiah, and it means the person, Messiah, two different things. Up until this point, we spoke about the, the era of Messiah. Now we're going to take some time to talk about the person, Messiah. Who is the Messiah? Judaism talks about this person, the Messiah, who will be the one to bring about the era of Messiah. And what's important to just to preface before we get into the, the discussion is that the word Mashiach or Messiah in English is a word that many people use outside of Jewish context and other religions as well. We use this concept of Messiah. 
And in addition to what we have spoken about the first the previous weeks, where the idea of a messianic era is very different from the Jewish take, the Mashiach himself is also a very different type of role. Although we we use the same word, perhaps, Mashiach, but we will see from a Jewish perspective, Mashiach is very different than other religions or other you know, ideas of what Mashiach is. And although we use the same word, it's almost not identical at all. The idea of a Mashiach is the person who has to usher in this era of the Messianic era, the era of godly revelation, the era of the purpose of creation. This person has to be a leader. So the question is, do we know who Mashiach is or who Mashiach could be. So the Torah doesn't give us a name. Hey, this is a person, this is a person, this is his address, knock on this door, he's Mashiach. But he doesn't give, they don't give us an exact, exact uh, you know, address. But the Torah gives us a resume. The Torah describes some of the qualities and the accomplishments that Mashiach has to have. So we can build quite a nice picture of what type of person Moshiach is, and whether any, any specific person fits the criteria, fits the bill. So <clears throat> Maimonides, based on prophecies in the text, nine and other prophecies, tells us what qualities Moshiach needs to have. And again, the purpose for these qualities is because the idea of Moshiach is to inspire the Jewish people to engage in their Judaism, engage with godliness, to be more involved in acts of goodness and kindness, and through that, to bring the Mashiach, right? to bring the era of Mashiach. So we should be able to have that, 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 that moment of time where godliness is you know, here on planet Earth. Okay, so look at text 10 and text 11 on page 208 and 209. We'll start with text 10. The Maimonides writes, the king Mashiach who will arise from David's descendants, will be wiser than Solomon and a great prophet, close to the level of Moses. He will therefore teach the entire nation and instruct them in the path of God, and all the nations will come to hear his words. Wow. What a resume. And text 11 continues. Mashiach's uniqueness will be his humility. Despite reaching the pinnacle of greatness, due to which he will teach Torah to the patriarchs and to Moses, he will nevertheless achieve the ultimate in humility and self nullification due to which he will also teach the simplest folk. Right? This man, Mashiach, on the one hand, he's so wise. He's the greatest prophet. He is teaching who? He's teaching the patriarchs. Who is sitting in his class? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Moses, the greatest of the great, the greatest sages are, are learning from him. He's the wisest of the wise. But at the same time, he also has the beginners. He also has the Joe Shmo. He also has the people who maybe barely read, read Hebrew. And they are also studying from who? From the same Mashiach. It's not like, hey, I'm the greatest professor. You have to be from the greatest professors to come to my come to my lecture, you, eh, you're not for this class. You go to that class down the hall. They are, they'll, 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 
food, they'll spoon feed you over there. Maybe, maybe one day you'll be worthy enough to, to, you know, to come to my, no, that's not Mashiach. Mashiach has the ultimate uh, uh, characteristic of humility where it makes no difference from the greatest of the great to the simplest of the simple, he's teaching them. So it's a, it's a unique resume. It's a unique characteristic. It's not, the, it's not, it's not your regular rabbi. <laughs> so that's who Mashiach is. And in addition to that, and perhaps the cause for these unique qualities is the special soul that Mashiach possesses. And this is explained, this is a Kabbalistic idea. We're not going to get into it in great, in great detail. You can see this in text 12, but the, but the gist of it is that in general, there are two types of souls. There is the individual souls, and then there is the collective souls. So collective souls are souls that are collective. They have within it all souls of their generation. So for example, Adam, first human being, had a collective soul. All souls are sparks of this collective, of this one soul. Moses had a collective soul. We all have individual souls, but there is one person in the generation, it's called the leader of the generation, the prince of the generation, that this person has a unique soul. In which way? Their soul is a collective soul, which means all souls of this generation are all souls, they're all pieces, they're all sparks of this one collective soul. Who possesses this one collective soul? This is the Mashiach. He has a special soul. Because he has a special soul, perhaps that is the reason why he is able to influence his generation. Because of the uniqueness of his soul. Because ultimately, he's very much connected to his generation. He's very much connected to his generation because ultimately they are all sparks of his soul. Is that here, Sean? Just close it up. His father's not over there. Yeah. Her father. Anyways, right? So he has a, this Mashiach has a unique, unique soul. So I thought of Mashiach as being like a spirit that would spread throughout in, in the whole area, not just the human. So like I said, there's the era of Mashiach, where when the coming of Mashiach, we're all going to be different, right? But there's going to be a different spirit. But then, but the Torah also says that we, we do believe in a person ushering in the Mashiach era. And this person is called the Mashiach. You know what Mashiach means? The anointed one. In Hebrew, Mashiach does not mean savior. Mashiach means to anoint. To the anointed one. In ancient times, in biblical times, they would anoint the high priest. They would anoint the, 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 the leaders of the, of, the, of the community. He's the anointed one. He's the chosen one to be the leader of the Jewish people, to inspire them and to bring them to Israel, etc. Right, right? He's like the king of the Jewish people. So Maimonides tells us what are the qualities that this person needs to have. So a wise person, a great prophet, person who will inspire the Jewish people, and humility. And now we're also saying from a spiritual standpoint, also has a unique soul. Now, 
how do we identify a Mashiach? Someone comes knocking in my office, I am Mashiach. What do I do? Hey, you're not wise. Prove I'm not wise. Right? It's very, it's very vague. How do I identify a person, whether this person is Mashiach or not? Now, you can say, well, who cares? No, th- there were situations throughout history where people claimed to be Mashiach. And the Jewish communities had to make this decision. Do we accept them or do we not accept them? And we'll talk about this momentarily about the, the different historical Mashiachs throughout generations. But from a Jewish law perspective, we have to know what does the Jewish law tell us? Someone claims to be Mashiach, or we identify a person, hey, maybe this person is Mashiach. How do we know? Are there set markers? Because being a great prophet and being very wise is very vague. It's a gray area, right? Who's going to decide whether a person is wiser than Solomon or not? Meaning, you know, who's going to argue that? So Maimonides does us a big favor and spells it all out. And he sets up very defined and rigid set of markers to identify Mashiach. And he does something interesting. He breaks it down to three types of Mashiach or three stages, you could say, in a Mashiach. Stage number one is what we spoke about till now. We call it the potential Mashiach. What does potential Mashiach mean? It means a person who has the qualities to be Mashiach. In every generation, there is a person, at least one, perhaps more than one, who is a potential Mashiach, which means if God feels, oh, we, the time has come, Mashiach has, the time for Mashiach has arrived, well, who is going to be Mashiach? Well, there's a potential, there's a person who potentially can be Mashiach. <coughs> they possess this soul and they possess these qualities to be Mashiach. How many people have been a potential Mashiach? Perhaps many. In every generation, you can identify a person, well, this person you know, potentially could be a leader of the Jewish people, is wise, is pious, is influential. Okay, this person is a potential Mashiach. In theory, if Mashiach came today, this person might be the Mashiach. The interesting thing is that the Mashiach themselves, they don't necessarily even know that they are a potential Mashiach. Only to the moment that God tells them, okay, pack your bags, you're the Mashiach. You won the lottery. <laughs> Actually, I want to skip a little bit to, uh, to text 18. Okay, text 18 on page 221. And we're talking about this potential Mashiach in every generation. And w- w- what would happen is disciples, students of a rabbi, very often would look at their rabbi and say, you know what? This rabbi is a potential Mashiach. If Mashiach will come today, I think he'll be my rabbi. And there were many names that were identified throughout the generations of people who were considered a potential Mashiach. In text 18, in each generation, people would assume that a particular individual was the Mashiach if the redemption were to occur at that time. 
in his generation, it was declared and accepted that Rabbi Judah the Prince was a suitable candidate to serve as Mashiach. Similarly, the students of Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, the Arizal, wrote that he was the Mashiach of that generation. All this is a straightforward matter. They believe that their rabbi could be Mashiach. Now, did the rabbi himself know that they may be Mashiach? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. In fact, we compare this to Moses. Moses himself, how old was he when he was told that he will be Mashiach? Eighty years old, exactly, Ari. He got it right, right? He was eighty years old. Up until eighty years old, Moses didn't even know that he has any unique qualities. You know the story of Moses. He was born in Egypt. He escaped Egypt as a young adult. He spent many, many years outside of Egypt in Midian and other places, waged wars. He has a whole history. Two-thirds of his life, he was outside of Egypt. Only at the age of 80, he meets God at the burning bush. God tells him, listen, Moshe, we need you to be a Mashiach. We need you to be a leader. We need you to be a savior. We need you to redeem the Jewish people from Egypt. Moshe is very, not very happy about it. He goes kicking and screaming. But that's when he's endowed with this extra qualities and this extra spiritual powers. Up until that point, he was just an ordinary man. And the same is true with the Mashiach of every generation. Not necessarily do they even know that they are a potential Mashiach. If the time would come, oh, then they, they will be told that they are the Mashiach. So that is, <coughs> that is the potential Mashiach. But Memandri says, there's also this, the, the next stage after the potential Mashiach is something that the Maimonides calls, refers to as the presumed Mashiach. We presume, we assume someone to be a Mashiach. And the final stage would be what's called a confirmed Mashiach. I want to read this inside. Text 14. Text 14, page 214. When a king from the house of David will arise, who as his ancestor David diligently studies the Torah and observes its mitzvah that's prescribed in the written law and the oral law, influences all of Israel to walk in the way of the Torah, rectifies the breaches in its observance, and wages God's battles, this person is presumed to the Mashiach. If he succeeds in the above, and he builds the temple in this place and gathers the dispersed of Israel. He is certainly the Mashiach. So we have the presumed and we have the confirmed. If you look at page 215, we have it broken down. Four conditions, four criteria to know whether an individual is a presumed Mashiach, which means there's a potential Mashiach. Okay, it's hard, it's hard to gauge a potential Mashiach. It's very... Subjective, you could say, uh, perhaps a potential Mashiach. But then, when do we presume that this person actually is Mashiach? So, someone knocks on the door, gives us a phone call, okay, 
I'm just letting you know I'm announcing tomorrow my candidacy. I am the Mashiach. Okay. Well, let me take out my checkbook. My not my checkbook, but my my, my checklist. And I am going to uh, check off to see if you meet the criteria. Criteria number one, be a descendant of King David. Okay. It's hard today to know exactly if you are a direct descendant of King David. Today in the Jewish communities, we assume that a very large percentage are, in fact, uh, descendants of King David. But it's kind of hard to know exactly. Some families have you know, family trees directly linking them to King David. Some don't. But that is, okay, that's A. B, be supremely pious and well-versed in the Torah. Someone who is a wonderful, wonderful human being, but it isn't well-versed in the Torah. Isn't the pious a person in this context? Pious doesn't mean a heart of gold. Pious means someone who follows the edicts of the Torah, someone who is a, an observant Jew, someone who is following the mitzvot of the Torah. <coughs> That's B. You know why? Because B has to lead into C. C means influences the Jewish nation to follow the ways of the Torah, right? If a person himself or herself is not observant in the Torah, how can they influence other Jews to be more engaged in their Judaism and more engaged in, in Torah and the mitzvah? If they themselves are you know, lacking some of, some, 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 some of their observances, right? Now, if you notice, in the, in the text of Maimonides itself, which this is obviously based on, Maimonides says, influences all of Israel, right? That's, that's a very, that's a, that's a high, that's a high uh, bar for, to, for, for someone, right? Influences all of Israel. But I think the point is, we don't just mean someone who is, has, has an influence on their, on, their, on their congregation, on their synagogue, on their community. We mean someone who has a major global impact. Someone who is, who, who, who is, who is you know, ha, has you know, the, the entire Jewish nation or a very large percent of the Jewish people throughout the world knows about this person, is influenced by this person. I mean, I mean, there are names of people, famous Jewish rabbis who many people read their books, not just in one segment of the community, but all, you know, in all the spectrums and all communities around the world are studying their, their, their works. I mean, these are certain rabbis who have this. But at the same time, I think it's fair to say that many, many, many great Jewish people great rabbis, great influencers, great leaders don't necessarily fit the bill of influencing all of Israel, right? They influence their community and there's a lot to learn from them. We're not putting them down at all, but to be a potential Mashiach or a presumed Mashiach is a very unique role and most people don't have it. And the fourth thing, the fourth condition is wages God's battles. It's kind of unclear exactly what that means. Does it mean actual battles of weaponry and bloodshed? Does it mean that you're actually, you know, you know, the the the, 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 the minister of defense in Israel? What does it mean, right? Or does it mean more of uh, ideological battles, the battle of ideas and values, the, the ethical and morals of, of Judaism, right? Uphold Jewish values, fighting. You know, other cultures and, and how Judaism should be assimilated, but Judaism's uh, morals and values should 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 should, should pursue right These, more of an ideological waging of war, whichever one it is. 
These are the conditions that Maimonides sets forth for someone who is presumed Mashiach. So, if we want to know to identify if someone is a presumed Mashiach, should we say, hey, we should really get behind this person? This person seems like they're, you know, they're not just a potential Mashiach, but they have a presu presumption that this person is Mashiach. If they're actually following these four conditions, that is someone we say, you know what? You gotta monitor this. You gotta uh, you know, take a close, closer look at it. Now, throughout history, there's only been a small handful of people who actually fit this bill. Like I said, there are many, many great people amongst Judaism in Jewish history who have done a lot for Jewish people. But only a few, we could say, really fit this criteria. But then Maimonides says, <clears throat> this is only presumed Mashiach. It doesn't mean that they're Mashiach. They're not confirmed yet. When are they confirmed? When they're successful. Some of these things are a work in progress, right? Influencing the Jewish people. Well, it takes years to influence. Will he influence the Jewish people? Will he wage the battles? Will he be successful? Well, how do we know what are the set markers to know whether this person is successful? So Mimadini says, the confirmed Mashiach must, A, ingather the Jewish people. We know when Mashiach comes, all the Jewish people from all the diaspora, from Australia to Africa, to South America, to, to North America, to Alaska, right? Europe, Asia, I mean, every corner of the world, wherever there are Jews, and believe you me, there are Jews in every corner of the world. All these Jews will be gathered, they'll be you know, brought back to Israel. You know, there's a famous song in the Hasidic, the Hasidic song goes, no Jew will be left behind, right? Wherever you are, wherever you are. I was once, I spent a few weeks, I spent a week or so, in Crete, Greece. I know Crete, Greece is not so far from Israel, but Crete is a, it's a small little island. And how many Jews live in Crete do you know? One. <laughs> I met that one Jew. <laughs> there are places, there are islands that have one Jew, two Jews, right? I spent a summer traveling through northern, northern Germany, Hamburg and North, all the way to Denmark. And we were going to small, we were to rural Germany. And we found places that literally had one or two Jews. And what's going to happen when Mashiach comes? All these people will be brought back to Israel. And who will, who will lead it? Who will lead the way? Mashiach. And be build the third and holy temple, right? So in order to be confirmed by Mashiach, you actually have to be successful. Success, success means what the market for success. Bring the Jewish people back to Israel. Build the temple. If you did that, then we say, we don't just presume that you're a Mashiach. Now we know you are a Mashiach. Did that ever happen? Not yet. It's been 2,000 years. Has there been potential Mashiachs? Plenty. Has there been a presumed Mashiach? A handful. Has there been confirmed Mashiach? Not yet. And we're waiting with open mouths for that time to come. What's important to note is that even if there's a presumed Mashiach, Mashiach only comes when Mashiach actually comes. So even if there's a person we feel like, you know what, they're really, they're really, you know, going in that way, right? They seem to be a presumed Mashiach. 
It seems like it's happening. We should really get behind this person, which is great. But Mashiach hasn't come until Mashiach actually comes. Right? You can use the analogy of, let's say, a marriage, right? Oh, I'm so happy. My daughter is dating a nice Jewish boy. Great. Are they married yet? No. But I presume that they're going to get married, which is great. You don't believe it. This guy just, just, just proposed to my daughter. They're getting engaged. Great. Are they married yet? No, they're not married yet. They're engaged. They're preparing. They have a wedding hall. They have the wedding cake. They have the wedding dress. Everything is ready. Are they married? No, they're not married until they're married, right? Same thing as with Mashiach. We have a potential Mashiach. We have a presumed Mashiach. And he's doing such good things that it seems like it's really happening, which is great. Mashiach only comes when Mashiach actually comes, which is when we return to Israel and we build the temple. This gives us a little bit of a better understanding of who the Mashiach is. The Torah tells us, not the name of the person, but a whole lot of who the person is. A lot of qualities and a lot of markers to know whether this person fits the bill of being a Mashiach. So it really gives us a help because guess what? Throughout the last 2,000 years, there were plenty of people who showed up to synagogue and banged on the people and said, I am Mashiach. And we have to know, do we accept this person? Or is this a phony, right? Is this a, a false Mashiach? And what I, what I want to do now is I want to go through some of Jewish history and talk about some of these false messiahs. I'm not going to go through every single one, but we're going to focus on two. We're going to focus on one which we refer to as a failed messiah and one who we refer to as a false messiah. Now, Failed Messiah and false Messiah are not the same thing. A false Messiah means they're false. It's bogus. It doesn't start. From the get-go, it was it was just shenanigans, right? It didn't make any sense. They, they never fit the bill. They weren't Mashiach. They claimed to be Mashiach. Perhaps there was a following, but they were they're false from the get-go. That's a false messiah. And we have our fair share of false messiahs. And then there's a failed Messiah. A failed Messiah means a, a Messiah who did fit the bill. And perhaps even at a certain point could have been even a presumed Messiah because they were doing what the Maimonides tells us a Messiah has to do. However, eventually they failed. So that's fine. So we obviously know in retrospect that they were not the Messiah, but nothing wrong with a failed Messiah. Yes, Gail. I'm just appalled by people that come forth and claim to be neighbor the Messiah. How pompous. So let's look at two people. And well, Kafka, I heard about, so he failed. That's, I know okay, that. so we'll talk about the Shabbat three in a moment. I want to talk, speak about the Bar Kochva. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, share a little video, which really uh, kind of tells the story of Bar Kochva, the historical uh, background and all. And I'm going to flip the, 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 the computer over here for those people who are in person who so they could watch it as well. Let me uh, just share my screen. Okay. I hope the sound is loud enough. From its inception, the Jewish nation lived with a messianic vision. 
Even in the worst of times, the Jews anticipated the rise of their star, a savior from the tribe of Judah who would liberate them from foreign subservience and enable religious freedom. 2,000 years ago, Rome stretched forth its mighty branches. In six of the Common Era, Judea, the heart of the Jewish homeland, became a Roman province. A few decades later, in the wake of the Great Jewish Revolt, the Romans destroyed the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. That marked the onset of the Jewish nation's exile and persecution. At the same time, the Jews could now anticipate their liberation through the promised Jewish Messiah. In 117 CE, Hadrian became Roman Emperor. He toured the empire, erecting pagan temples and promoting Roman beliefs. When he reached ruined Jerusalem in the year 130, he ordered the city plowed over and rebuilt as a Roman city named Aelia Capitolina, with a temple to Jupiter, the chief Roman deity, erected on the site of the Holy Temple on the Temple Mount. This was more than the Jews could take, and in 132 CE, a major revolt began unlike any other. The rebels assaulted the Roman garrison stationed in Judea and succeeded in capturing and holding part of the territory. As Jews from the diaspora flocked to join the cause, Hadrian responded by sending massive reinforcements from Syria, Egypt, and Arabia, but these were similarly defeated. Rome was badly shaken. Hadrian realized the need to muster a truly enormous army in response. He summoned legions from across the globe, including his best general, Julius Severus, who was ordered to travel from Britain with three European legions, and units were dispatched from as far as the Danube. Nearly one-third of the colossal Roman army was redirected to counter the Jewish revolt. The Jewish army was led by Bar Kokhba, about whom we know precious little. The name Bar Kokhba wasn't really the man's name. We actually know his name was Shimon Bar Kosiba but he was called Bar Kokhba because of a biblical verse in the book of Numbers, Darach Kochavi Yaakov become Shevet Yisrael, that a star will come forth from Jacob and a staff will arise from Israel. And this verse was understood to refer to the Messiah. As far as we know, many Jews believed that Bar Kokhba was indeed the Messiah and that they were supporting the coming of the Messiah in participating in the revolt. Such views were reinforced by Bar Kokhba's military gains and his liberation of Jerusalem. What's really amazing is that during the period of Bar Kokhba's rule, he put out coins. On the back side of some of these coins was actually the words Elazar Kohen, Elazar, the high priest apparently, and this may indicate that they tried to restart sacrifices. Despite Bar Kokhba's widespread support, the Jewish sages were sharply divided on whether Bar Kokhba was the Messiah. There were different views among the very important rabbis that we know from the Mishnah. Rabbi Akiva was convinced that Bar Kokhba was the Messiah. The Jerusalem Talmud actually records him as saying, this is the King Messiah. At the same time, others like Yochanan ben Torta were convinced that he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. And he told Rabbi Akiva that grass will be growing on your nose, meaning you'll be in the grave before this guy will ever be a Messiah. Eventually, the tide turned. The legions launched a campaign of systematic annihilation that left Judea almost entirely depopulated. 
The Roman historian Dio Cassius writes, very few of them in fact survived. 50 of their most important outposts and 985 of their villages were razed to the ground. 580,000 men were slain in the various raids and battles, and the number of those that perished by famine, disease, and fire were past finding out. Bar Kokhba withdrew into the fortress town of Betar. It was besieged and fell in 135 CE, ending the revolt. Its occupants were slaughtered in an enormous massacre on the 9th of Olive the date in the Hebrew calendar on which the first and second temple had been destroyed. Bar Kokhba died there, and Hadrian bitterly oppressed the Jews and the Jewish practice in retaliation. Some years ago, I was at a scholarly conference about the Bar Kokhba revolt, and an Israeli archaeologist mentioned they had actually already located over 500 of these villages. I imagine that by now, he probably found a lot more. So here we see that these events really occurred and that this war and this tragedy was as great as we find in our sources. In the ensuing two millennia of Jewish exile, the Jews, unlike the Romans, survived and thrived, returned and rebuilt, and continued to eagerly await the fulfillment of God's promise of redemption. Okay, I'm sorry for those who are here in person. It was a little bit low. I hope everyone was able to hear it. Um, in the follow-up email that we get, God willing, tomorrow, there, there would be a link to see more, so you, you could watch this video on your computer or on your phone. So that is the story of Bar Kokhba. So Bar Kokhba was living, I think they said 130. We're talking about about 50 years or so, maybe 60 60, 70 years after the destruction of the Second Temple. So the Jewish people were new to this idea of exile. And in fact, Rabbi Akiva and many of the people who were living at that time of this revolt actually experienced this exile. They were there by the destruction. They lived in Israel. So for them, the idea of returning to Israel with the Mashiach was very, very palpable. It was very real. And they saw a bar but they saw a man who was fit to build, was influencing the Jewish people, was a, was a warrior, was fighting God's, God's wages, waging God's wars and being successful. So they presumed that this person was Mashiach. Was he a false Messiah? No, Rekiva said he was a real Messiah. Rekiva was from the greatest sages. Believed in him. Yes, other sages disagreed. Okay, but that's fear. It's fear to argue. But Rekiva felt that he was a true Messiah. But the only thing is, he failed. He wasn't successful. Okay, that's fine. So he was a failed Messiah. Another famous uh, messiah, but not a failed messiah, but a false messiah, is the Shabtai Tzvi. Okay, so Shabtai Tzvi is <coughs> someone who lived in the 17th century in Europe. He was born in 1626 in the city that today is known as Izmir in Turkey. He was a handsome, a charismatic man who at a young age mastered much of the Talmud and Kabbalah gained a following of disciples. And in 1648, a young man, we're talking about 22 years old or so, he declared himself as the Mashiach. And over the following years, he lived in Constantinople 
in Alexandria, in Athens, and in Jerusalem, and among other places. And he gained a huge following of many, many Jews who believed the Shabbat Tzvi that would immediately usher in the redemption. We have to remember, the Jewish people at that time were going through a very, very difficult time. Lots of devastation. In 1948, 1949, we know that the, the pogroms through the Cossacks, the Chalabininsky and all, all his men who were literally raging through Jewish towns and, and literally destroying, killing men, women, and children. And it was, it was chaotic and it was, it was shatter, shattering. The Jewish people were broken. And the Jewish people at the time were looking for hope. They're looking for something to cling on for, for hope. So when they hear people from throughout Europe hear this idea, oh, this great rabbi, Shabtai Tzvi, a learned fellow, he claims to be Mashiach, they didn't ask any questions. They didn't take out the checklist and try figuring out whether this person fits the bill. They heard Mashiach say, you know what? It's better than the alternative. So people literally left their businesses, left their home, left everything. They picked themselves up and they left. And he just went to travel to Shabtai Tzvi. It gained a lot of traction. Now, to be fair, there were many, many rabbis that right away from the get-go, they realized that this person sounds fishy, it doesn't sound right. And they and they were discouraging their communities from going ahead with it. But it was a big, it was a big controversy because many, many, many Jews felt, no, this is Mashiach. And they did follow him. And really, the the, 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 the problem over here was that right from the beginning, the early stages of his campaign of Mashiach, he already started <coughs> violating many of the halachic norms. So, as we said, the idea of Mashiach is not to violate Judaism, on the contrary, to embrace Judaism and to inspire others to embrace Judaism. But here, the Shabbatzi was the opposite. He was actually leaving Judaism. He was becoming more and more secular. He was violating more and more halachic laws. And it, get, it got so far where, obviously, throughout time, more and more people were realizing that this is a sham, this is, a, this is false, and they were leaving him. But many still clung on to him. And eventually, in 1666, he actually converted to Islam. And even after that, some people felt, oh, he's still Mashiach. And then eventually, unfortunately, in 1676, he passed away. He died. Suddenly he died in prison or the executed, whatever. However, he died. And some people still believe that he was a Mashiach. But at that point, I mean, especially after he converted, most people realized this person is a false Messiah. Now, we're not blaming people. You know, Gail asked earlier, why would someone do so? I don't know what, what, what his motive was, whether it was for the attention or whatever it was. Perhaps he felt the Jewish people need some, some hope. And this is what, that was his motive. I'm not judging him. I don't know. But the point is, when we hear someone claiming, yes, I am the Mashiach, we have to open our books and say, does he fit the bill? Is he inspiring us to be better Jews or to leave our Judaism? Is he fighting for the Torah, for the preservation of the Torah's values and morals? Or are they going against it? Are they furthering us from, from, from the Torah and, and, and from God? 
That is the idea of Mashiach. So any Mashiach which is inspiring Jews to be better Jews, they may be a Mashiach. They could be a potential Mashiach or even a presumed Mashiach. But any person who is taking Jews away from Judaism, furthering us from our Judaism, from our heritage, that is exactly antithetical to what Mashiach is, because Mashiach is to usher in a time where, on the contrary, we're going to have godliness and we're going to be able to fulfill all the mitzvahs, etc., etc. So obviously, Mashiach is supposed to be in sync with that to be to be able to 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 uh, to inspire us to 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 uh, to embrace our heritage, etc. So that is a little bit. I think we kind of give a, a, a nice detailed overview of who Mashiach is. Again, no name, but this is what the qualities of Mashiach is. We have some historical failed and false messiahs, but ultimately we are waiting. We are waiting for the coming of the final messiah. May it be speed in our day. I just want to conclude with a short story. I should have checked up the exact details of the story, which I did not. But the gist of the story is I mentioned earlier about there was a great rabbi, the Chafetz Chaim, who always had like a suitcase ready to go. So some of you know Rabbi Nemes, Rabbi Yossi Nemes, the rabbi over here in Chabad. So his father, his name was Rabbi Yitzchak Nemes. He was a stamp dealer. He would buy and sell stamps. <clears throat> and he would travel very often to, to Central America or South America and buy and sell you know, for business. Now, I'm not sure which country this was, the story happened, but in one of those countries in, in, in Central America, he, uh, he, he, he met up with a Jew. And the Jew was not married. The Jew was not like, did not have a Jewish home, but wanted, you know, met up, met up with him. Actually, the story goes where he came to his apartment and he, he came in, he said he, he can't even walk in. It was full of these, I guess, idols, I don't know what to call them, full of these statues all around his house. He said, I can't come into your house. Come to my hotel room and we'll talk in my hotel room. So he came to the hotel room and they, they, he would, they were schmoozing. He was talking to them about Judaism, trying to inspire him for Judaism. Eventually, he got rid of all these idols, and, he, and Rabbi Nemes was able to go into his house the next time he came. And they had this very good relationship for a few years. Very good relationship. He became a little more observant. He started putting up to fill in. He had a mezuzah. So he, kosher, he was getting more involved with his Judaism over the years. And, and um, <coughs> Rabbi Yisrael Nemes also was, knew his wife, his children, you know his family. One day, Rabbi Nemes is in New York and he gets a frantic call. I think it was from his wife. And she starts yelling at him. He says, you think my husband is such a pious person becoming more observant than all Judaism? Da, 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 da. You know what he's really up to? He's a low life. He's a low life. And he starts just cursing him. He's cheating on me. You know what's going on? And you know, Yisrael Nemes like all surprised to hear that. Says, "Tell me what's going on? What's happening?" He says, I, "I was going, I was cleaning up the room, and I found under the bed a little suitcase with a change of clothes. What is this? He's obviously he's going, he's traveling, he's meeting people without no, without without, without me knowing. This is crazy." Oh, well, Nemes calls him up and says, "What's going on?" He says, "What do you mean? You don't remember you told me the story about the Chafetz Chaim who always had his clothing ready in case Mashiach comes? Well, I'm doing the same thing." <laughs> so he called his wife, he called his wife down. He says, Yes, this is what it is. Don't worry, he's not leaving you. <laughs> Don't worry. Either way, so that's the story of Mashiach. Next week, we'll go back to Tuesday. 
will be the final class of this course. And next week we're going to talk about what is it going to be, what, 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 is, it, what is living in the era of Messiah going to look like? How is the world going to be? What is it going to mean? Just the, the, the reality of living in that, in that era. So that's going to be a discussion in next week. I hope you can join us. Uh, good to see you, Cece. I didn't see you earlier. Welcome. Hope you're feeling good. <laughs> and thank you all for joining. If you have any questions or comments, please keep me as long as you want. All the best.